Thanksgiving evening, my Aggies played LSU. It was, in, it was played in College Station. It was 100,000 people, nearly all of them Aggie fans. The first half did not go well. I, I watched part of it on TV. You could tell in the beginning there was this massive excitement and huge hope and great energy that the crowd had. And as the game was progressing first half, you could see that, that energy dissipating as their hope went south. I had a good friend who was there, uh, experienced the entire thing, and he said in the second half, there was this, uh, this surge that the Aggies had, and it began to look like there might be this great comeback to end their season, the regular season with this comeback, and he said you could feel the crowd come alive again. You could just feel the energy beginning to pulse through their veins again, and then the surge was short-lived, and it began to appear that the hope would be dashed. And he said you could feel the energy just drained out of the crowd that night. And as I heard his story, I thought about the power of hope to give us energy and the power of hope to, to fuel us. There are some of you in the room today that have young children, and in three weeks, you're going to freshly experience the power of hope to energize. Because on Christmas Eve, your children will have this high hope that Santa's going to show up at your house. And you'll try to put them to bed, and they'll have a hard time going to bed. They'll have a harder time going to sleep because this hope is going to give them so much energy. And probably in some houses, in the wee hours of the morning, when you're sound asleep, there'll be a tap on your shoulder because hope has given so much fuel to your child or children that they'll be waking you up at 3 a.m. just on the chance that Santa has already come. So we're going to focus today on this, on hope, but a special hope, a hope that God gives that has great power to refuel us. I want to put some perspective around it. We're in a series called The Harbor. We've said the harbor is this place where God restores people that are battered and broken and bruised. It's a place where he refuels people that are tired and weary. Then he returns them back to their daily life with Jesus at the center. And so we're in this, in this series right now, and uh, today I'll be teaching about refueling again. And to set this up, I want you to watch uh, part of the story of Donna about her being refueled. I feel like when I came to the harbor, uh, I didn't really know at that time how broken I really was and how many things in my life were very broken. My marriage, um, just myself, I needed God and I was at a point where I didn't know where else to turn to and uh, I was raised in a church um, and attended church fairly regularly growing up but when I came here I learned what it was like to be in a close relationship with God when I got here from the very first day from the very first Sunday that I visited uh, it was evident that this was the place that I needed to be and God led me here it was evident to me and the answer was right there before my eyes that this place was filled with the Holy Spirit and God was here and he spoke to me and I've never been a regular attender of church and now I don't, I, I, I hate to miss, I hate to miss church because I love it so much and it fills me with everything that I need to get through the next week and I can't wait to come back. This church meets and strives so hard to meet every need of every person that walks through the door. I leave here filled and refueled. I can't 
be of use to anyone if I'm not filled and if I'm my tank is empty. So I come here every week and I get refueled and I know that I can help my family and myself and others after being refueled. God, through this place, restored me, restored my life, and I get refueled every week, and I return to the sometimes really rocky seas of life, and I'm prepared and can handle it because I know God is with me and I can come here as much as I need. Two Sundays ago, I I taught about how God uses Sabbath to refuel us. In essence, God uses this one day out of seven that's focused on drawing near to Him and rest and refuels us that way. And as I've already stated today, I want to teach about how God uses hope to refuel us. And I want to look first at 1 Kings chapter 19 at the life of a man named Elijah. If you have a Bible, you might turn to that. It's in the Old Testament. Elijah lived several hundred years before Jesus came. One of the most famous prophets of of the entirety of the Bible. The chapter that precedes this chapter is one of the highlights, if not the highlight, in most people's eyes of Elijah's life. He's had this encounter on on the day described in, in chapter 18 where there have been 850 prophets of false gods. And, th- and these prophets have the support of the government and the power structure and all that. So, th- so there are 850 prophets of false gods. And, and Elijah is standing alone as the only prophet there of the one God of the universe. And there's this encounter. And in the chapter, God shows up in stunning, supernatural ways. At the end of the day, there are 850 dead prophets of false gods. And Elijah standing. And so that rolls right into chapter 19 where I want to pick up. And it begins by talking about how the power structure, how the queen Jezebel then declares that she's going to have Elijah killed. Now that he's destroyed her prophets of her gods, she's going to have Elijah killed. And it has a surprising effect upon him in light of what just happened. But I'll pick up in verse 3 of chapter 19. It says, Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah. And he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors who've already died. This great man of God, this great prophet who had one of the most profound victories on, in chapter 18, now is saying, I'm done. He's not running on empty He's no longer running. He's saying, I hope this is the last day. I hope these are the last breaths. I'm just done. And the verses that unfold, God does, in essence, God does Sabbath with him and for him. God provides some sleep for him, and then God sends this angel to provide some fresh food for him and some fresh water for him, and he takes that, gets nourishment. He sleeps again. The angel again provides fresh food and fresh water. He gets strength again. So in essence, that Sabbath, instead of him drawing near to God, it's God drawing near to Elijah and providing this rest for him, and there's this beginning of refueling in Elijah's life. But he's going to need so much more than that, and God knows it. So God says, now I want you to take this 40-day journey, and I want you to go to Mount Sinai, which would have this profound effect upon Elijah just simply hearing God was calling him to Mount Sinai. 
That was the place where Moses had stood and God had given the Ten Commandments to Moses. It was this sacred ground. And so with this renewed energy, he travels to Mount Sinai, but there's a, a suggestion of how his spirits really are still lagging behind. He goes to Mount Sinai and he, go, and he hides in a cave. And so I want to pick up there. He's in this cave. He's gone where God commanded him to go. I want to pick up at the very end of verse 9. So the Lord says to Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. He's saying, this mission of my life that you gave me, that has fueled me for so long, he said, this, I can see now the mission has failed. Every single one that has aligned with you is either dead or, or, or turned away from you. I'm the only one left, and it's just a matter of time until Jezebel's soldiers find me, and I'll be killed too. It's over. It's done. There is, there's not a hint of hope in his life, in his heart. He's saying, I'm done. And so God then uh, calls him actually out of the cave and says, come on, Elijah, get out of the cave stand on the mountainside, and God meets him on the mountainside. And this is what God says to him in the very end of verse 13. He, he asks again, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah repeats the very same thing again. Verse 15 then, the Lord tells him, go back the same way that you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Hazael to, the, to be king of Aram, and then anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, to be king of Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Saphat, from the town of Abel-Meholah, to replace you as my prophet. So he's saying, I'm anointing the next generation. The vision's not done. There's another generation that will pick it up. And then he says, anyone who escapes from Hazael will be killed by Jehu. And those who escape from Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Yet I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. God's saying, there's 7,000 more. Elijah, this is not a failed mission. This is just one step in the mission. There's a whole generation to come. And in the chapters that follow, you find Elisha once again refueled by God. And for quite some years, living this vibrant, passionate life in this mission for God again. God knew he needed two things. He needed Sabbath. He needed rest and drawing near to God. But he needed hope as well. He needed this God-given hope as well, and you and I do also. I want to give you a glimpse of the prominence of hope in Scripture. There's much I could say, but let me give you a snapshot of it. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, uh, this is the chapter of the Bible that's this famous chapter on love, and it concludes with this verse. It says, three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Faith, hope, and love. If you and I were to separate those out, we would look at faith and say, oh, we, we understand how big that is. We understand there's no relationship with God without real faith in Jesus as the crucified and risen Son. We understand faith. It's everything. And we see love and we get that. We understand that in God's currency that love is everything. And the transformation that he is making in those that follow Jesus is a transformation of love. We understand how big it is. But how much time have we given pondering how big hope is? In this famous chapter, and God understood he would be drawing people to this chapter for centuries, he says there are going to be three things that last, faith, hope, and love. 
Hope has this huge place in our lives. And then in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, this is in the New Contemporary Version translation. It says, then Jesus used this story to teach his followers that they should always pray and never lose hope. Never lose hope. It's this commandment of Jesus. Wherever you stand today, wherever you sit today, wherever you may lie today, never lose hope. And then in Romans 15.4, it says the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. The scriptures give us hope. And why? Because that's where we find God's word, and that's where we find God's promises in scripture. Now, let me clarify something. You and I hope for a lot of things. We may talk about hope quite a bit, but hope apart from, from hope in God, hope in Christ, means something completely differently. I, I would probably say to some of you, I hope the Astros win the World Series next year. I hope that. But you have to know, I've been hoping that for 52 years. It hasn't happened yet. And I realize while I hope they'll win next year, I have no certainty that they will. I could tell you, I hope my car gets 300,000 miles. It might. It's at 215. But while I hope it gets there, I have no certainty that's going to get there. None at all that's going to get there. You, if you, some of you are or in, in school, junior high, high school, college or something, and some of you guys, you may have hope that that girl, like two rows over in English class, you hope that she likes you, but you don't know. You don't have certainty about that. You just hope that she likes you. Some of you that, that are raising kids still, you have a, a sick child, and, and you're hoping it doesn't spread to the family. But you have no certainty, do you? It, it's just a hope, but you have no idea if that's what will actually come about. Some of you work in the oil sector, and you're hoping this very most recent surge of oil prices, you're hoping it's a permanent surge, or if not permanent, at least a decade surge that might last for a while, and you're sitting there hoping that there's not another layoff, but you have no certainty, do you? We talk about hope in our daily lives. It means something completely different than hope that comes from God. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 18, 19, it says this, So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. I could stop there. And for some of you in this room, if you would be gripped by that, it would change every tomorrow you have. It is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, because of that, therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. We have great confidence as we hold to this hope. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. The hope from God that God gives and his promises, it's this strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. And then one of the passages that I have loved and taken encouragement in for a long, long time. Psalms 1830 says, all the Lord's promises prove true. Every single promise of God you ever encounter will come true. Most of us are aware that there were, there were some celebrations of the first Christmas recorded in Scripture. Most all of us in this room would be aware that on the night Jesus was born, there was this this Christmas celebration that very night with the shepherds that came and celebrated the birth of the Messiah coming to this planet. 
And most in this room would recognize that sometime later, maybe days, maybe weeks, sometime later, these wise men came from the east and they celebrated the first Christmas as well. But maybe less of us realize that there is a third celebration of the first Christmas in Scripture. And one of the individuals at that celebration was a man named Simeon. And you'll find this in Luke chapter 2. You may want to turn to that with me. Luke chapter 2. The setting is, as you're getting into this chapter, it begins to talk about there's this purification ceremony that, that Jesus' parents will go through. They'll take Jesus to this, with them to the ceremony. And this ceremony would happen 40 days after the birth of a child. And so we know this is 40 days after Christmas Day, after the birth of Jesus. And they have taken Jesus into Jerusalem for this purification ceremony. And I'll pick up then with that background in verse 25. At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. He he was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come. If you have studied the culture at his time of the Jewish people and you know a little history, then you would know that at this time, it had been 450 years since God had spoken through a prophet to the people of Israel. It had been 450 years since the time of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. It had been 450 years since God had freshly said, my Messiah is coming. To put that in perspective, if, if Simeon were in our day in 2016... It would have been 1566, the last time the promise was spoken and written down, before the pilgrims even came. That's how far back the promise was. And the Jewish people, they were, they were trudging through life. They were trying to grind through the days, just keeping the law. And there was no spring in their step, and there was no hope in their heart. And if you would look at what we see of the people at that time, People, strangers wouldn't come into Jerusalem and look at the Jewish people and say, I want what they've got. You, you, you didn't have that. They were a hopeless people. And, but there's one of them, there's Simeon, that, that still believes the promise. At 450 years before, it, it's written in Scripture for the last time. He still believes it. So much so that God picks him and sends the Holy Spirit to him and, and says to him, after all, not just 450 years, but for the days of Moses and beyond, no one, no one has yet seen the Messiah. And the Spirit says to him, you're going to see the Messiah. Before you die, you'll see the Messiah. And it says he's eagerly awaiting. Can you picture how he gets up in the morning? There's energy, there's purpose, there's focus. This could be the day. And so I pick up then on 27. On this given day, it's 40 days after Jesus is born. That day the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the the baby Jesus to the Lord, as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace. As you've promised, I have seen your salvation which you've prepared for all people. He's a light to reveal God to the nations. He's the glory of your people, Israel. He's saying, I, it's come true. What you've promised is come true. 
And in one sense, he wasn't at all surprised. He knew it would. It was the promise of God. And he knew God fulfills every single promise. And he knew not only that the Messiah would come one day, he knew the Messiah would come before his days were done. He knew that. He knew that, that God would fulfill every single promise. And that statement is true for all of us today, that God will fulfill every single promise he's made. And he would intend you to find great hope in those promises. So let me begin by looking at just a few of those. And I want to begin with Matthew 12, 21, which is speaking of Jesus. And it says, his name will be the hope of all the world. His name, the name of Jesus, will be the hope of all the world. And the point for us to get from that is, is that all hope of humanity is tied up in Jesus. There's no hope for humanity. There's no hope for any individual apart from Jesus. He's the only hope of humanity. He's the only one that can forgive sins and can redeem, that can give relationship to God, can give eternal life. He's, he is the only hope. All other hopes are wrapped up in him. And so all of the hopes, and I'm going to run through about five of them fairly quickly that I want you to hear and absorb. And I want to, to, you to understand that these hopes are only good for you if you're a follower of Jesus. Now, you could, if you're not right now, you could become one in a heartbeat by trusting your life to him and by saying to him, I'm, I'm giving you my, the entirety of my life is yours. You know, forgive me and lead me. But these promises are only for those that are followers of Jesus. And as I, as I read these, I want you to let them soak in and ponder if one of these or more of these are, are the promises you need to hear fresh today. And you need to realize the hope in these promises. So the first one is really around, if you've been following Jesus for a while, and you're discouraged about the rate of progress you've had. If you're looking at your life and you're thinking, I, this, there's this one sin it seems like I come back to again and again, and it'll always be that way. Or maybe you're looking at the broader picture and thinking of, of all the times that you just drift and drift and drift in general. This is, this is the promise for you. It's, it's in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. It says, I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. There should be this certain hope in that. And no matter how discouraged you are about how badly you felt or how many times, if your yearning is to follow Jesus, you should have this massive hope. Like today is a new day. Like this is a fresh day. God's not done. He will continue working, bringing about transformation in me until the very day I meet Jesus. And then he'll complete that work in me. There should be massive hope and fuel in that. Another one, and this is one if you are sensing that there's some needs and demands in your life. Maybe they're financial, maybe they are physical, maybe they are relational or spiritual or emotional. But if you're sensing there's some, there's some provisions that I just simply can't access on my own. Philippians 4.19 says this, Philippians 4.19, And this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. He will supply all your needs. In my world, I mean, there have been a couple of times I thought financially, I just don't know. I don't know, but I know this. And I got such hope and such fuel in this. And there have been some times emotionally I thought, I just don't know. But there's been huge hope and fuel in this. 
Because I, I, there's this emotional need for health, and I know, I know, I know he can bring that to me. Or maybe, it's, maybe for you it's this relational need that you have. There's this void, this vacancy for meaningful relationships, and God's saying, if, if you belong to me, I will meet every need of your life. Don't give up hope on that. I'm not done yet. And on and on and on through whatever needs those might be. There should be certain hope, which brings great fuel. This next one is, if you are seeking wisdom, there's a person I'm close to who's, who's really seeking wisdom about some important things right now. And this is one that has fueled me so many times. It's James chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. And there's some of you in this crowd right now, you're, you don't know what to do. And you've been asking God, and he didn't answer right away. And maybe you've asked for quite a while, he's not answered. There's this promise here that he will fulfill. James 1, 5 and 6 says, If you need wisdom, ask our generous God, and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking, but when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. If, if you want to know, ask him. He will tell you. It doesn't say he'll tell you in the next 30 seconds, but he promises he will tell you. There's only one condition for this. He just says, be sure you've already made up your mind that you'll trust him and do what he says. You won't be in this undivided state of saying, God, tell me what you want, and once I hear it, I'll decide if I'll do it or not. Once I hear it, I'll decide if it's worth the risk or if it's easy or hard. Make up your mind. He's saying, ask, ask God. If you've made up your mind, I'll just do whatever you say. I just want to know. He promises, I will tell you. I will give you my wisdom. You'll have your answers of what to do. Next one is this. If you are in the midst of hardship, and there are a number in this room who are in the midst of very, very difficult times. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, it says, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. So we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. It doesn't say that God causes everything, but it says if you're a follower of Jesus, then whatever occurs in your life, then God will somehow remake it and reshape it of the difficult times and bring good in it. It's a promise of God that he will bring great good in it. There's a man named J.W. Tucker that had gone to the Congo back decades ago. In fact, he was there in, in 1964 in the Congo. He went to this one region off of the Bomokandi River there. Uh, in going there, he, he knew how hazardous that place was to take this message about Jesus. And indeed, when he was there trying to convey this message of Jesus to the people of the Bomokandi River there... They, they took uh, broken bottles and they beat him with broken bottles until he was bleeding profusely, still conscious, and they threw him in the crocodile-infested Bomokande River where he was eaten alive by crocodiles. And his, he had a wife and three young children that were also in the Congo, and they were able to be rescued out of the Congo, and they're flying back to, across the Atlantic to the States uh, his wife was Angelina, and she had a faith. Uh, by the way, let me back up give you one more piece about, about Tucker. He, I, I mentioned Tucker knew the risk. And Tucker is one of his best friends. Morris Plotz said to him, if you go in, you won't come back out. 
To which Tucker said, God didn't tell me I had to come out. He only told me I had to go in. He, he, knew, he knew what was most certain to happen, and it did. But his wife, Angelina, had a faith to match his, and she has the three young children. They're flying across the Atlantic in deep, deep grief. And in the midst of the grief, she's journaling and records this prayer. She says, we ask that you, God, take Jay's life, which has been laid down, and use it in death for your honor and glory. So she's saying, my husband's breathed his last. I, I know he's in heaven. There's this deep grief. But in his death, then bring glory to yourself in his death. And, and for 30 years, it would appear that there would be no answers to her prayers. But in the mid-90s, there's this civil unrest that's uh, risen up in this Bomaconde River section there. There's this tribe there. This is massive unrest. And, and the leader of the tribe, it's gotten so bad in this little civil war of the tribe that they reach out to the national level and they reach out for some help. And so they send this man to lead it. He's called the brigadier. He's part of this massive police force to lead it. And it just so happens the brigadier 30 years earlier had been led to faith in Jesus by J.W. Tucker. And so the brigadier shows up to this people group there and he, and he has a lot of armed soldiers with him. It's not that dangerous to tell about Jesus except as he tries to tell about Jesus, they won't listen. They simply won't listen. So he's there for a short while. He realizes there's this tribal tradition there that they follow. And the, the tribal tradition is, it says this, if the blood of any man flows in the, in the Bomakande River, you must listen to his message. And so he gathers the people, and he says, there was a man 30 years ago whose blood flowed in that river, and therefore you must hear his message. And here's the message, and he told the message of Jesus. And on that day, because they had to listen, they had to hear the message of this man whose blood flowed in the river, several fell to their knees and trusted Jesus. And now two decades have passed, and there are thousands in this tribe following Jesus. And there are dozens of vibrant churches following Jesus there. Why? Because God, as he always does, made good on his promise. He always, always brings good out of any and every circumstance a Christ follower walks through, always, always. I give you one more, and this is especially for you if you, are, if you or someone you love appears to be on the verge of death. This is especially for you if you've recently lost someone you love uh, to death. And this is also for those of you that, as I have, have stood at a gravesite with tears streaming down your face. Revelation 21, verses 4 and 5, gives this picture, and I'll only give you a small piece of the picture, of what life is like in heaven. And, and all who trust Jesus, the moment they breathe their last step into heaven. And this is a snippet of the picture that's, that's actually spelled out through two entire chapters. It says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever and the one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. There's this certain hope around that. And I found myself with tear-stained cheeks at a graveside. On the one hand, feeling deep personal grief. At the same time, being lifted up by this massive hope. And energized by this hope and this certainty of heaven. And, and where my loved one who knew Jesus already was at that time. God, God means to consistently refuel our lives with hope, the hope that he promises. 
I don't know how 2016 began for you, whether it began hope-filled or hopeless. And I don't know how 2016 has progressed for you, whether it's progressed in a hope-filled fashion or a hopeless fashion. But I do know how the final month of 2016 can go. I do know it can be a hope-filled month. The, the hope that God gives is found in His promises, and His promises are found in Scripture. Hebrews 10.23 says this. It's this command. It says, Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep His promise. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we can affirm every single promise of God will come true. So, so Scripture, my friends, is the prescription for hope. Scripture is the prescription for hope. Many of you in this room, you're already consistently on a daily or nearly daily basis, you're studying Scripture. And for you, I would just ask you in the remaining days of this year, as you study Scripture, have your, have your mind alert for any promises you encounter as you study. And for every encounter you promise, pause there and spend some time and, and wrestle with whether or not that promise has seeped deeply into your heart and mind. And wrestle with the, the hope it should be giving you. And if you're not realizing that, then focus on that promise and embrace the reality of that promise for you. And let God refuel you as you soak in the promises that he's given. Let him refuel you in the hope that he gives you. I know there are a number of you in this room that you're not consistently reading scripture. And so this is what I would recommend for you. I'd recommend that beginning tomorrow you take the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, and, and set aside 10 minutes tomorrow and take the first chapter of Matthew just the first chapter, and read that chapter. And as you read it, as you're absorbing the entire message of the chapter, look for the promises of God. And when you see one, pause on that and reflect on that and ponder whether or not you believe that promise. And ponder whether or not it's seeped deeply into your heart and mind and soul and ponder whether it's infusing you with hope. If it hasn't yet, then soak long enough for it to begin to raise up the hope within you. And then on Tuesday, take Matthew chapter 2 and Wednesday, Matthew chapter 3. And if you'll do that, then you will bridge all the way to January 1. You'll find yourself beginning a brand new year, January 1, on the last chapter of Matthew. And you'll be setting yourself up to have this constant infusion of the promises of God. And the promises of God, He always fulfills. He always meets those promises. So, so this is what I would encourage you to do. If, in, if you are soaring with energy today, uh, take, take the challenge as well. Take the challenge as well. He intends to give us this refueling by the hope that comes from his promises. We're about to, to sing a song that is so hope-filled. It's this Christmas-based song. It's fairly new, but some of, the, some of the lines will have some familiarity to it. The message will have complete familiarity, but it is so filled with hope. And after I pray, uh, and in fact, as I pray, the band will come up, but after I pray, we'll sing this song. And if you don't know it, you're welcome to stand and just focus on the message of the song. If you know it or want to begin to sing, it's not hard to sing. Begin to sing along and let, let the truth of this song be maybe the beginning of truth of this day, soaking deep into your spirit. Let me pray and then we'll worship with this song and then I'll close this out. Father, uh, Write in our hands, we have hope waiting to be birthed. Your promises, every single one of them, they will come true. 
And if we will know that and embrace that, then that will birth hope in us, especially in, in any area where we're struggling now. Especially now, there'll be fresh hope that will be birthed in that. And hope always brings energy. Hope always refuels. Hope always adds some spring to the step. Hope always lifts the heart and the spirit, Father. And how we need that, how we always need that. So this day and the days that come, may we be looking to you and to your word, to your scriptures, to your promises. And may we we be refueled by hope. Father, now as we stand, may the truths we're going to sing refuel us even now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.